been with us. You've noticed that we've been going through long passages of the Word of God, particularly through Exodus, and that is not without reason. It's because these long narratives are teaching us something. They're teaching us something about what it means to be saved. And that's kind of been the entire uh, point of this sermon series through the book of Exodus. We're calling this the gospel according, according to Exodus. And what we're learning through the book of Exodus is this is our story of salvation. We read long narrative passages because these long narrative passages are explaining to, to us who we are in Christ. That is the point. It's showing us a picture. It's showing us almost a mirror, if you will, of what it looks like to be found, to be found in Christ. And this is the, the problem. And this is the problem with us in the Bible Belt is whenever you hear the word, the Christian word salvation, we all know what it means. And yet we probably all have a little bit of a, a nuanced, different definition of what it means to uh, experience salvation or if you, how you would answer the question, are you saved or not? And this is some of the ways that uh, we answer the question here in the Bible Belt. Of are you, are you saved? Some of us think that salvation is a prayer that we prayed at some point in our life, typically at BBS or um, in a Sunday school or something like that, over a certain period of time in our lives. Other of us think that salvation is a, another term for just Christian morality. It's like, uh, have you experienced salvation or um, you, you would process it through, am I living up to the morals and ethics of Christianity? And that's how I would say that I am saved. Or, or some of us would say, well, uh, are you saved? Well, yeah, I'm saved because I was born in a Christian home. That's what salvation means. It means being born in a Christian home. And, and so therefore, I, I guess I've experienced salvation because of the home that I was brought up in. Or some would say, are you saved? And he's like, oh, is that Christianity? Yeah, well, yeah, I'm not an atheist, and I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a Muslim, so obviously, I guess, yeah, I've experienced salvation because I was born in America, and I guess uh, salvation, uh, America, Christian, apple pie, it's all kind of the same, it's all kind of the same thing. And so uh, the Exodus story is actually trying to communicate what the biblical definition of what salvation is. And two weeks ago, Missed y'all last week. Uh, it's been a week, hasn't it? Um, but uh, two weeks ago, we talked about what salvation's true definition is according to the Bible. And I kind of mentioned three main things. Number one, salvation is about getting out of slavery. It's about getting out of the slavery of your sin. How do you get out of the slavery of your sin? It's by crossing over from death to life by grace. I was like, how do we cross over from death to life by grace? You have to have a mediator. That's what the biblical definition of salvation is. And I'm not going to re-preach that sermon from two weeks ago, but uh, that's pretty much it. Getting out of our slavery ob objectively from our sin, crossing over from uh, the death that our sin has put us in into the eternal life that God has for us in Christ Jesus and being able to do that only through him. Only through him, the ultimate mediator. Okay? Let's pray. Just kidding. Um, we, we still have a little bit to go. So have a little bit to go. And so what we see here in this passage of Exodus 16 and Exodus 17 is that 
this salvation, it takes a little bit to get in. It takes a little bit to work its way deep into our hearts until uh, the gospel is usable in every aspect of, of our lives. Because what we see here is this is talking about the redeemed people. They have already crossed over. They had the mediator's power work through them to part the Red Sea. God has already saved them from their slave masters, their former slavery. They are no longer slaves. They are objectively free. But what do we see right here? A whole lot of grumbling. A whole lot of grumbling. They're they're free, but they're, they're not happy about their freedom. They, they keep on saying, you know what, it, it was a little bit better living back then. Living back then in the predictable life of our slavery. Uh, I talked about it two weeks ago, how we all tend to have this Stockholm syndrome of our, of our sin. We, we like to protect it. And we're like, oh, it's not that bad. And, it's not, and no one really knows about it. And it's just kind of over here. It's just something that I kind of live with over here, the sin that I live with. But it's really not that bad. No, no, no. Uh, it, it's a slave master that's trying to dominate and control your life. And what the gospel has to do is it has to work into every single part of the deep black hole that is the human heart so that we can be transformed into the image of Christ. And what we see here is a grumbling people, but uh, if you've uh, not just woken up from a coma yesterday, uh, you probably in the last year have been grumbling about something from 2020 (laughs) until this point. Uh, Next month is the one-year anniversary of the lockdowns, And I feel like there has been several things that are in our society that we too have been grumbling about. Probably COVID-19. You've grumbled about it from one angle or another, whatever side uh, you want to be upset about COVID-19. A lot of you have recovered from COVID-19, so you're frustrated that you have it, or you're frustrated that you got it from somewhere or something like that. A lot of us have been frustrated with politics, 2020, Trump, Biden, that was fun, right? And now we're... It seems like, can we ever get away from it? Can we get far enough away from kind of the political divide? And I see him grumbling right now. (laughs) See, um, maybe some mandates, city ordinance mandates you've been grumbling about. Uh, Maybe some energy companies you've been grumbling about over the past week. There's probably something called uh, ERCOT that, what are they about? And who are they? And where do they... (laughs) Where do they get their authority to do anything with my power system? See, we're grumbling just like they are. And we have things that we have grumbled about over and over and over again. And I think probably some of us in this room, if you're really honest, you're grumbling about either an organization or a board or a governor or a president or a virus or something. But ultimately, if you dig deep within your heart, you probably, I'm just being honest about what, I, what I've experienced, is you probably grumbled at God. God, why are you allowing these things? Why are you allowing COVID-19? Why are you allowing the death? Why are you allowing the pandemic? Why are you allowing the discord? Why are you allowing the weather to act this way? And you see, we might not be any too different 
even if you know Jesus in this room, even if you have walked with him for a good, long time, it seems like we can't get over our grumbling. But let's focus in on how God responds to those who grumble against him. That's my hope for us today, is that we see our God in true light of how he responds to us, our, our faith us as faithful grumblers against him, all right? We see it in Exodus chapter 16, verse 2. Let me just read it. Again, Anthony read it earlier. It says, The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. In chapter 16, grumbled is used nine more times. It seems to be the theme. And in chapter 17, uh, it just it's par for the course. It says this in verse 2. It says this, Therefore, The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses says, why do you quarrel against me? Why do you test the Lord? And this is what's interesting about this setting, is the word quarrel is different than the the word grumbling. It's just a a different word. In verse 3, it says that they grumbled against him. But right here, it says that they are quarreling against him. And this is what's interesting is the setting that's going on in chapter 17 is the, the people of God are setting up the stage for a mob trial. A mob trial. You know what that is? They're crowding around Moses and saying, what are you doing? Uh, this, is, this is ridiculous. We're all dying of thirst. And so they're about to execute judgment on Moses right now. This is, this is a trial setting that is going on. Mob justice is about to happen. They're about to come around. We see this. We see this by how Moses inquires to God and says, they are about to stone me. They are about to stone me. They're about to execute justice on Moses for being a negligent leader by leading them out into this wilderness so that they can thirst to death. In chapter 16, we see what what were they afraid of? Oh, we're, we're starving to death. And then God answers that prayer. And right here, right here, they're saying, we're about to die and perish Um of thirst. I thirst, they say, over and over and over again. And they're holding Moses accountable for this. This is important. This is very important. They are blaming Moses, and it's setting up the setting for a mob trial. A mob trial. So here's the interesting thing. Moses points out something to them that is real honest that they don't want to admit that they don't want to admit, and I alluded to it earlier. Moses say, says, why do you quarrel with me, and why do you tuss, test the Lord? He's saying, your problem really isn't with me. I didn't redeem you. I didn't shed my blood, and you put my blood on the doorpost. You were saved through the blood of the Lamb. You were saved by the way that God God provided salvation for you whenever he executed uh, his judgment against sin back in chapter 12. He's saying, what are you grumbling against me about? Really, your problem is against God, isn't it? It's kind of like whenever uh, something bad happens to you during the day, you get a bad, um, bad grade on the, the test or something, and you come home, or you have a bad day at work or whatever, and you come home, and who do you take it out on? You take it out on, you know, your teacher. No, you take it out on your roommate. You take it out on your spouse. You take it out on your kids. Why? Because sometimes it's just easier to look at the person that's in front of us and say, you're to blame. 
you're the blame, and that's what they are doing here. But Moses wisely points out, hey, uh, your problem isn't really with me. Your Your problem really isn't with me. It's actually against the God that redeemed you. So this is the setup. This is the setup. Moses is fed up. He says, I'm sick of these people. They keep on grumbling against me. The people are like, I'm sick of Moses and of you, but I'm not really saying that. I'm sick of you. Really, it's just Moses. Moses is the problem. Um, And let's see how God responds. Shouldn't God be fed up with them as well? He said, and God says this. He says, I'm just going to meet their needs. They need bread? Okay, let's give them bread. You need water? Okay, I'm going to give you water. He just displays unbelievable patience. Unbelievable patience. A grumbling people and God over and over and over again just gives grace, just gives patience. What kind of God is this? This is amazing. And I think, here's a, here's a quick point. I think you and I, through the course of our lives, we would be much better suited to deal with suffering. To deal with suffering, to deal with hardships, to deal with pain, and to to deal with trial if we had the big picture of God's long-suffering and patience in our lives from the jump. If right now me and you can just resolve, God, I see you as the God of long-suffering, and I trust your patience with me over the course of my life and all my blasphemy and all my disobedience. If I just, if I just kept that in my mind's eye at all points, I think we, me and you would, have, uh, uh, would do a much better job of dealing with suffering. Uh, that's easy, right? No, it's not easy. Uh, my kids, Evan and Brooks, are, I have three, Canaan, but... He's different because I, I don't quite yet understand his personality, but I get Evan's and Brooke's personality. And whenever they come to me and they say, or they come to my wife, Stephanie, uh, and about their hungry, they do it in different ways. Evan is very sly. Evan has uh, n- noticed a couple of times whenever I interact with her, and she's like, oh, I don't need to say this directly because that tends to hurt my dad's feelings. And so Evan will walk into the kitchen and do this. And just kind of stare off into the distance. I wonder if we're going to cook dinner today. (laughs) I wonder if we're going to do that today. Mom, Dad, when do you think would be a good time to cook dinner? So uh, you know what she's doing, right? Those of you that are parents, she's saying, hey, I'm hungry. Why don't you feed me? What are you doing? What's your problem? Brooks is a little bit more blunt. He walks in and just says, looks at my wife literally the other day and goes, Mom, did you know that I'm hungry today? I is hungry. I is hungry. And so he's a, he's a little bit more direct and just saying, feed me. And you know how we respond? Uh, it, it, those that are parents probably have gotten this and understand this. But we respond, you know what? How many times... Over the last five years, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, have we always, we've always come through and we've always fed you every single meal. And why? Why do you have to be so sly into thinking, you know what? I think today's the day that they're just going to absolutely forget and let us starve to death. That's how I feel. That's what I know. I feel like they're doing. They're just saying, they don't love me. They don't care about me. They're going to starve to death, and so I guess i got to take care of myself. And then they interact with us in that way. <laughs> and I know that's funny, 
But have you ever got to the point, if you're reading through the book of Exodus with your girl group um, and following our Bible reading plan here uh, at Redeemer, if you're following along, have you ever gotten to the point where you're reading through Exodus and you're just like, do they not get it? Like, have they forgotten everything? Like, how amazing is this God? He meets every single one of their needs. They were in slavery, they grumbled in their slavery, and God got them out of their slavery. Uh, They they were sinners, God saved them from their sin. They were uh, about to perish before Pharaoh, and God vanquished Pharaoh, and he parted the Red Sea in his grace. Uh, He he displayed all the plagues to execute that he was the greatest God. Every single one of their uh, needs, God met like that instantly. And we see in this passage, hungry, fed, thirsty, Uh, watered. It's amazing. And they just forget over and over and over again. And you can't help but think Israelites are just dumb, right? (laughs) They're just dumb. They don't get it. They don't get it. How could they, how could they forget all the miracles, the plagues and the, 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 everything that's going on? How could they forget so easily? But remember, you and I, you and I have something that they don't have. We have a bird's eye view. When we're reading Exodus, a lot is happening. A lot of time is is spreading across these chapters. A lot of time. And we're looking down on all the amazing things that God has done for the Israelites, but they're living in it. They're living in it. And it is so much harder to be living and sitting in pain than trusting in, uh, you know, the antidote that I gave at the beginning of this point, which is just like, why don't you just play... Why don't you just have a bird's eye view of how patient and loving God is? Why don't we just do that? Why? Because this is hard. This is really, really hard. We're a grumbling people. We forget there's something broken deep inside of us. One of the very first books that I read as a Christian was a book called Crazy Love. And there's a chapter in Crazy Love called Spiritual Amnesia. Spiritual Amnesia. And the whole point of that chapter of that book was this. We constantly forget what God has done for us. We constantly forget it. And my 19-year-old self goes, huh, that's what's wrong with me. (laughs) I just forget. I'm just like the Israelites. And my guess is you are too. My guess is you are too. Because there's something deeply broken inside of us. It's akin. It's akin to the same, I guess, connection in the brain or maybe even the heart of you tend to remember criticism way more than praise, don't you? One critique, even though it could happen a decade ago, you could recall it in 10 seconds. But there's been 10,000 praises or um, encouragements in between that, but it doesn't matter. The critique sticks in your, your heart way, way deeper than any praise. In the same way, fear is so much more powerful than security. How many days... Have you been secure in your own home and God has provided for you and met your needs? It doesn't matter. When fear comes, it's all-consuming. It's all-consuming. And you think, God, where are you? Can I trust you? I don't think I can. I don't think I can. Failures are so much more memorable than successes. There's there's some some wire that is going into our spiritual amnesia that's connected right into our heart that we are just not able. We're not able to remember all. All the promises of God. We are a grumbling people in the midst of our pain. 
That's what we are. And what this passage is showing us is it's trying to reveal that this is a mirror into your life, Christian. Into your life. That you are going to continually be grumbling over and over and over again. You're going to be sitting in your pain over and over and over again until you get the promises of God deep into your heart. And this is the theme. This is the theme of this passage right now. How does God interact with those that are grumbling? Grace. Patience. Long-suffering. Those that are grumbling in this room about different political things, those that are grumbling in this room about different sufferings and trials and sicknesses and cancer diagnosis and osteogenesis imperfected type 5. How does God interact with you right now? Patience, kindness, grace. So this is the setting. You need to remember that. God, how does he display his patience right now? Let me set up uh, this, this trial, if you will, that is not on Moses, is not on the people, but in fact on God. In Exodus chapter 17, verse 5, it says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with, you, with which you struck the Nile, and go. Okay? Remember, this is remarkable. You, you, you have to get this if you want to tr truly unlock what God is trying to reveal in, in Exodus chapter 17. There is this drama unfolding in these quick verses that is just remarkable. There, there, imagine a mob rule taking place about to stone Moses. All of a sudden, he's about to stone Moses, and then God intercedes, interjects, and says, you want to have a trial? Let's have a trial. And so he says, grab your staff. Remember this staff? This is the staff that whenever he stretched it over the Nile, what happened to the Nile? Princes of Egypt fans, what happened to it? It turned to Kool-Aid? No, blood. It turned to blood. All right? It was red all over. Then whenever he, whenever he passed up after that plague, I think it was the third or fourth plague, he, he did it over water, then he did it over the land. What happened to the, to the land? The sand turned into gnats. And then he did it in uh, the, the eighth plague, I believe, and he reached his staff up into the air. And what happened whenever his staff went up into the air? Hail and thunder and lightning came down. This is the staff that has the power of the judgment of God in it. It's the same staff that he, he raised over the Red Sea, and it just passed. And it just parted right, right in front of them. He says, grab that instrument. Grab that instrument and go and pass before the people of Israel. And I'm sure the people of Israel are like, whoo, because they probably knew in their own heart. They probably knew, you know what, I'm going to be in trouble. I've been the one that's been grumbling over and over and over again. And then all of a sudden God speaks to Moses and there's going to be a trial. Can you imagine the relief that they feel whenever in chapter, uh, verse 5, it says, and pass before the people? So he didn't stand in front of the people to execute judgment on the people. He passed before them. And he's not going to execute judgment on Moses because Moses the, is the one who's wielding the object of God's wrath, is wielding the execution stick, if you will. 
And he's not passing before the elders. The elders are proceeding over the trial. That's why he called them. He says, call out the elders so that we can do this for real. You want to do this for real? Let's have a testimony of the elders over here judging before us who's to blame for all this suffering. Who's to blame for all of this? And let's have a trial. And let's have a trial. And you know what happens? You know what's absolutely amazing about all of this? Is in verse 6. It says, behold, this is God speaking. Behold, I will stand before you there. I will stand. Thus saith the Lord, I will stand before you there. You know what that means? This is a very unique phraseology. Uh, Edmund Clowning says, says it this way. He says, never before and never after this verse has God ever stood before anyone. Standing before someone is like you standing before the Queen of England. She never stands before you. It's always the lesser standing before the greater. And God in this passage is humbling himself. He's humbling himself and saying, I will stand before you and you bring all your accusations against me. He's humbling himself as if he's done something wrong. The redeemer of his people, humbling himself, the the maker of heaven and earth, the, the God of the plagues that he just executed on all of Israel's enemies, and now he humbles himself underneath the people that he redeemed. Now we know who's on trial. Now we know who's the subject of the trial. It's God himself. That's what's happening in chapter 17. God is on trial, not for anything he did wrong, but before the grumbling of the people. For the grumbling of the people. You see what's going on here? God is about to execute judgment on the grumbling. He's about to. Why? Because that's what you have to do. Justice must happen whenever there is an offense against a holy God, and God is standing in the execution chair. He's the one who's standing in the execution chair. You see what he's doing? He's being a substitute. He's being a substitute. It should have been Moses. It could have been Moses. Moses wasn't perfect. It should have been the people who were grumbling against him. But God decided to stand in their place. Justice must happen. This is the setting that we're in in Exodus 17. Uh, There was a play by Gunther. I'm going to mess this up because I'm not German. Uh, Rutenborn. He was uh, a Lutheran minister who wrote a play that helped his people try to process through uh, the horrific realities of the Holocaust that happened within their country. So he was German, obviously. And as the German people begin to understand what all the horrific things that happened during the Holocaust, you know what they did? They, They mourned. They mourned and they mourned and they mourned. And so he wrote this play, and in this play, you know what happened? You know what happened? He says, um, he basically played out what was going on in their national heritage at the time. They revealed what was going on in all the Holocaust and concentration camps, and the people said, well, it wasn't us. We didn't know what was going on. That was the army. And whenever they went to the army, they said, oh, it wasn't us. 
It was the officers. You know what the officers said? No, it wasn't us. It was the generals. And the generals said, no, it wasn't us. It was the chancellor. And uh, over the course of the play, you know what they do? They go higher and higher and higher to blame, pass the buck, higher up the chain to where the people of Germany says, you know who's really to blame for this? It has to be God. God is the one to blame for this. He's the one that made this earth. He's the one that ordains everything into existence. God has to be the one who allowed this terrible thing to happen. And so, therefore, God has to pay. God has to pay. Is that blasphemy? That isn't. I don't know what is. Blaming God, the maker of heaven and earth, whose ways are higher than our ways, whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts, as high as the heavens are above the earth, as Isaiah 55, 9 says, so are his ways higher than our ways. How dare, how dare anyone blame human, human sinful tragedy on God? And yet that's what happened in the course of this play. And listen, that's what's happening here. That's what's happening in Exodus chapter 17 is they are saying, Moses is saying, why are you putting God to the test? Why are you blaming God for your predicament in this life? Why are you doing all this? It's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. And what should have happened? What should have God have done? If you were God, what have you done? I mean, I can't even... I'm frustrated whenever my kids are hungry <laughs> and they complain against me. And I think, why don't you love me? Why don't you trust me? Why, why do you treat me this poorly? No. God stands in their place. He looks at their grumbling and says, I will be infinitely patient with you. I will hold you so close. There is nothing you can do. I have already redeemed you. You are mine. I will move heaven and earth to make sure that for the rest of your days you will know who I am, that you are mine, and I am yours. I am yours. And look what it says. It says, I will stand before you there, and you shall strike the rock. God doesn't just stand in our place, but he takes the punishment in our place. He was like a sheep that was led to the slaughter and said, Moses, execute judgment on the rock. And you know what 1 Corinthians 10 says? The rock was Christ. All of this was pointing to the finished work of Jesus. What happened to Jesus on the cross is he was struck with the rod of God's wrath so that you and I can experience the patience, the grace of our great God and King. No grumbling can keep you from this God. No grumbling can keep you from this God. I love that hymn that says, There was a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. The sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Listen, March is here. One year since the lockdowns, and life has really kind of been different ever since. And if you're like me, and I imagine you are, you have put God on trial this year. You, like them, have put God on trial. Maybe not overtly, and maybe just for a little bit, but you have. That's blasphemy. And Christian, you know how God looks at your blasphemy? He says, you're mine. 
what kind of God is this? That is this kind, this patient. Listen, this this chapter, I don't know what all suffering everyone in this room is going through. And I don't know what levels of degree you are going through it. And I, and I promise you, this, the Bible says that your suffering is real and needs to be worked through and dealt with. And I don't think that it actually answers the reason for your suffering. But this passage definitely tells you the reason for, that, that you aren't suffering. It tells you the reason that it isn't. The reason that it isn't is not that he doesn't love you. Of course he loves you. He, he dealt with the biggest thing in your life. Your, your separation from God, he dealt with that. So whatever suffering you're going through right now, of course he cares. Of course he cares. And any amount of grumbling that you've been going to, you might be in this room saying, you know what, God, he'll never, he'll never accept me. The things that I've said, the, the way that I have shaken, sh- shook my fist up to heaven, he won't accept me. Look at this passage. Yes, he will. Yes, he will. He'll say, you're mine. Come in. There, there's a place. I will stand on the rock. I will take the judgment that you deserve. No amount of grumbling can separate you from God. Whatever suffering that you're going through right now, whatever hardship you're going through right now, I don't know the answer for it. I don't know the answer for it, but do you see what this God has done for your ultimate suffering? If you have seen it, if you have seen it, if you, more than that, because here in the Bible Belt, we just think that we're saved because of what we got up here. The Bible says, taste and see. Have you drank in the water of God that comes through Jesus? Have you drank it in? Because if you have Because if you have, then it doesn't matter what you're going through right now. It it is flea bites compared to what God has dealt with in dealing with your ultimate suffering. Isn't this amazing? Isn't he incredible? Isn't he incredible? Last shot. To help you see, to help you taste. John chapter 19, verse 28. Jesus is hanging on the cross. And knowing that all was finished now, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. I thirst. Jesus on the cross died of thirst so that you and I can experience the drink of living water that will never, never run dry, that will always refresh day in and day out. He died of thirst so that you could live by the living water. Jesus says, Christian, look at me. Jesus says, abide in me. That's what it's talking. He's saying, drink and drink to the full over and over again. Whatever suffering, whatever hardship that you're going through right now, guess what? Look to him. Drink. If you just have it here and you never drank and experienced the goodness of this God who is who is long-suffering with your grumbling, who is long-suffering with your doubt, who is long-suffering with your pain and struggles and trials, and who's long-suffering every time you shake your fist up at God in blasphemy, he says, come home, you're mine. I took the wrath in your place. I took the wrath in your place. You know how that play ends, by the way? This is, a, this is incredible. I, I wrote down some notes. I'll try to summarize it. I might read some of it. But that play... Uh, that Gunther, 
if, if that's how you say it, <laughs> wrote, you know, he said, he said they ultimately found God guilty. They ultimately found God guilty, and they said, you know what, this is all your fault. Everything that happened here on this earth during the war, that was your fault. And you know what they said? The judge pronounced his sentence. The crime is so severe that this is going to be the worst of all sentences. I hereby sentence God Almighty to have to live on this earth that he created. He has to live on this miserable earth as a human being. That way, he will know the suffering that we've experienced. And then, we won't only make him have to be born, but we will have him be born under suspicion of shame about his birth. And he will have to live as a Jew. And this world hates Jews. He will have to live as a poor man. And this world hates poor men. He will have to live as a sojourner where he will wander about all of his days with no place to lay his head. This is, this is what we will do. We will make sure that he has to live this way. And not only that, not only that, we will make sure that he lives his entire life going from place to place and no one will understand what he is saying. And he will be abandoned even by his closest friends. No one will understand him and everyone will betray him. And at the end of his life, even his father will turn his back on him. And then he will know the suffering of this world. And he won't just die a death, the judge said. He won't just die a death. We'll make sure that he dies the death of the most physically painful death that mankind could ever concoct. And he will die slow and painful. And he will suffocate and thirst to death. And he will have plenty of suffering before his end. Then he will know what it's like to suffer in this world. Can you see? Jesus did. He did. I don't know what you're going through. But I know, do you feel like you're on the out? Do you feel like God isn't giving you a fair shake right now? Do you feel like you're struggling? Are, are you in a season of grumbling right now? Your only antidote is see the God that stood on the rock in your place. And when you see him, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Will you pray?